0: Welcome to Answers That Count. If you own a business, you can count on us to give you the answers you need to succeed in all aspects of your business. And now, here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Hello, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Welcome back for another exciting show of Answers That Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove, and thank you for joining us again. I am in the Tallahassee studios of Real Talk 93.3, so... This is going to be another great show. You know where to find all of our shows. We're on all your favorite podcast channels, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio. We're on all of those channels, so check us out. Whatever your favorite is, look for Answers account there. Uh, we're on YouTube. We're on Roku. We're on Amazon Fire TV. So make sure when you go to those, those channels, sub- subscribe to the channel and hit notify so that you'll be notified when we drop another show. So this is going to be another great show. We've got another uh, exciting episode with our economic talk. We've got economic Professor Joe Calhoun in the house. Welcome back Joe Calhoun from FSU. Thank you so much and if you will just take a note of that beautiful sunshine behind Professor Joe. man, he is in outside Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, enjoying the beautiful sunshine. so it's uh, it's good to be in Florida. It's good to be in Tallahassee today. Enjoying some beautiful sunshine, cool temperatures, and we're looking forward to another, uh, we're gonna have a great fall weekend this weekend. So, uh, thank you for joining us. And Professor Joe, we've had, we've had some great discussions on the economy, and we try to take a look at what's happening in the current economic times, and then we'll delve into one of the economic theories of, of your, of the book that you're a co-author on. So, if, you know, if, if we look at uh, one of the headlines I wanted to talk about today was in the Wall Street Journal. This was an article that was published earlier in the week. It talks about the uh, commercial property foreclosures. And, you know, it goes back to one of the topics that we've talked about before, where people in the the business world, they've, they have learned how to adapt in this COVID situation. And the adaptation included working remote, working from home so that you you, uh, I guess, had your social distance, but you weren't, you weren't in an office environment, so you were able to work from home or wherever. So, what that, un, unfortunately, what that's done is it's really uh, allowed people to learn how to be less reliant on the traditional office space. So, I think part of what you're seeing here with this office foreclosure is that, that uh, that could be something that that we see on the horizon. We also see how the effect of that on the on the retail brick and mortar places, you know, you see where Amazon sales have exploded during this COVID crisis and just a natural uh, consequence of that is less reliance on the brick and mortar retail shops.
0: on there as the consumer demand has shifted more towards uh, digital online platforms obviously we've all known about amazon but uh, even as the traditional brick and mortar stores have focused more of their online business so this is a trend that started and uh, no surprise that when the pandemic hit it just greatly accelerated now as much as we like to think that someday we're all just going to snap back to normal it is clearly not the case because as you suggest it's not just the retail brick-and-mortar, but it's also the traditional office building that is now realized that, you know what, I don't have to have this massive office space, which is incredibly expensive. Uh, for anybody who uh, is in charge of paying that rent or is in part of that business, you know, they'll be shaking their heads right now. Well, yes, it's incredibly expensive. To either own or rent that kind of space. I mean, it's more than just turning on the lights and turning on the heating and the air conditioning. There's all kinds of other expense that goes with that. So now that businesses have been kind of forced uh, into this this brave new world of of dealing with COVID, uh, they're also able to look around and say, you know what? I can really adapt, and I can take some of these negative things and turn them into positive things in the future. And we're talking about dramatic and costs as you get
1: rid of uh traditionally uh what we consider about going to the office you know, Right. people and realize that not only do I have to do that, I don't maybe want to do that as much as I did before. It's kinda nice working I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh you know, even those those businesses and those industries that we don't make that, that transition to a virtual uh setup, I think they're there even even those are going to be challenged. I think uh, we've talked about the education delivery system in the past, like the university systems, specifically Florida State University, that I don't see that changing in the long term, but that, that has at least been challenged and people have had to think about how can we do this better? How can we do it more on a virtual basis? How can we deliver our, our education, uh, through the internet? So it, it's, it's definitely challenged. Almost every business, almost every industry out there. Every industry is concerned about trying
0: to maximize its revenue, maximize its income stream, and minimizing its costs. And that's been the standard traditional business model for years, whether you're a non-profit or whether you're a traditional for-profit, you want to maximize your revenue and lower your costs. Well, we're now having our eyes open to new ways that we can lower our costs. It's certainly a whole lot easier to jump into a Zoom meeting than it is to drive across there or fly across the country or simply drive into the, my office and spend time and energy there. I already have a home, I already have a computer, it's a very minimal cost to add some software and a web camera and do my meetings in
1: a virtual way. Right. So you teach economics at Florida State University. What what has what's been the delivery method that you're that you're doing this semester, this fall semester?
0: Asynchronous delivery, which means instead of standing in class, students, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 10 o'clock, I'll now do a Zoom call Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 10 o'clock. Well, I realized for my class that wasn't going to work very well because of the sheer volume of students. So I'm delivering what we call asynchronous, which means I spent a lot of time in front of a video camera over the summer creating these short video clips of me lecturing, giving presentations, going through the content, breaking it down into small segments because nobody wants to watch a 50-minute video of me talking. Uh, I still broke it down in you know, 10 or 15 minutes and then I posted all those videos on our course management site and told students, this week we're doing chapter one, here's all the videos for chapter one, you go watch them and then we'll have optional Zoom calls where students can ask me questions and we can have some interaction and I can get to know them a little bit. And uh, so we've got basically three models across the university. We've got traditional in-person. We still have quite a few of those. And then we've got remote synchronous, which everybody's in the same Zoom call at the same time. And then we've got remote asynchronous. And it was up to the individual instructor to figure out what best worked
1: for him or her and what best worked for their curriculum. Interesting. So I know before you you were, uh, like many of the professors there, they took role – uh, for attendance. What are you doing now in this situation? Well, uh, I think they're really students uh a little bit more heavily to
0: just uh, uh, do the right thing and, and to get their assignments done on time. So I'm not taking any kind of attendance. Uh, I tell students I would love to see you on these optional Zoom calls, but they're not required. I'm never going to uh, write down whether you came or not. Here. I'm, I'm here. The call is there for you. If you don't think it's valuable, then don't come. But you still have to get your work done by the end of the week. They're the hard deadlines uh, for some assignments uh, at the end of the week. So if they think they can do it on their own by simply watching the content videos and reading the book, then that's great. If they get a little bit more
1: help, then I'm available to them as much as possible. So theoretically, you, you created this uh, the, per, the videos in advance, and let's let's make the assumption that you can use those videos or at least a majority of those videos again for next semester. So what that what that theoretically has done has freed you up for with more time to be able to have more one-on-one Zoom meetings or still have the 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 one-on-one if you will interaction with the students. So you could possibly Yeah. Right.
0: Because when students come into class, it really is a social event for them. They get to hang out with their friends. They get to talk about the content. They get to share ideas. Hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. What are you struggling? Can you help me out? And then, uh, of course, it's a way for for me to interact with them. Uh, So an optional Zoom call tries to to meet some of that need. It's not perfect,
1: but it's the best thing we have right now. Yeah, that's good. And. The um give us some just globally for the for the university itself the the in house instruction versus is it like ten to twenty percent that is still uh students in class on campus? It's a low percentage, right? Yeah, it's a low percentage, but I've heard
0: that for the fall semester, uh, if you just the number of classes. That are offered in person, and divide that by the total number of classes that are offered uh, throughout the university. Uh, it's in
1: the neighborhood of twenty or twenty-five percent. Right. Um, and, and, but then, of course, there's, there's other ways of looking at it as well. You, you could
0: take the total number of students that are in in-person class divided by the total number of students. You you'd come up with a, a much different number there. Uh, so there's different ways uh, of looking at it. Um, but if it, 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 again, just the number of classes in person divided by the total number of classes offered throughout the university, 20 and 25 percent is what we're at for the fall. There's a lot of pressure for us to increase that for the spring semester, and we're working really hard to figure out how we can make that happen for our students. Yeah,
1: I was on a Zoom call with one of the, the dean of the business school about a, two or three weeks ago, and uh, I Just off a recall, the percentage on campus, not just business school, but overall was very low, like you're saying, in the the 20, 25 percent. But the the students that are that are in town on campus living on campus, is is probably 50 percent, maybe even greater than that. So it's the numbers may have been even higher than 50 percent. So you still have a lot of people in town, but they're just not going to uh, class on campus. So I guess they're doing their Zoom call from their from their dorm room. Yeah, and, and I'm on campus almost every day. Um,
0: I, I feel very safe uh, going into campus. Uh, but what I do, it's a really unusual experience because um, I, I'm, my office is in the Bellamy building, which is right by the main library. It's typically just a beehive of activity because uh, we have a lot of faculty who have offices there a lot of staff and we have uh, several uh, large classrooms in addition to small classrooms. And I walk in there now and sometimes I only see two or three students and I see two or three faculty. Uh, so it's, it's really unusual. Uh, the difficulty we have is, collecting data about how many students are actually in town right now. Right, FSU can certainly count the number of people in dorms because we have control over that. We have no way of collecting really accurate information about how many students are living in these private residences. So our guess is somewhere in the 50 to 60% range of our students are actually in town, uh, but we don't know that for sure. But that's the number that that we all think is happening
1: right now. Right. Very interesting, interesting times we're living in. And who knows what that, what the, what it's going to look like on the other side of this when we have a vaccine, when the, when the treatments are improved. I know they've made dramatic improvements on the, on the treatment so far. So we continue, we, we expect to continue to see that improve and the, and the vaccine we keep hearing that's going to be any time now. So I know it's not going to be today or tomorrow, but it's going to be in the near future and still record time for getting a vaccine out to the general public. So, all good things coming with that, and we hope we're on the the back end of it. Uh, so we're we're optimistic that we're we're going to see the recovery, we're going to see the cure, we're going to see the treatment, all all available very soon, and improved statistics and improved numbers on all of those fronts. So, thank you for the yeah. Fingers crossed on that, fingers crossed on that, and who knows, maybe we'll see a um, the stadiums packed again soon too. So. Who knows what we're going to see with that? I know the here in the state of Florida, Governor DeSantis uh, allow has has uh, passed the the executive order to allow for stadiums to be at, at whatever capacity that the universities allow, so they uh, they can go full capacity now. So we'll see how that changes. I would expect not to see any dramatic changes in the in how that's done over the re- remaining of the fall semester, but look to see changes. Uh, start the institute in the spring semester. Yes. Yes. I agree. Well good. So um, let's jump into continue our discussion about your book, the uh Common Sense Economics, the third edition. So I'll let you hold up the book and uh let's do a little shout out to that. There
0: And the last part, the part that's uh, become one of my favorites, is uh, personal finance. Uh, so this is just the primer. It's not meant to be an exhaustive uh, list of things that you should do in your personal finance decisions, but we think it's a really great start. I want to make sure to give a shout-out to my co-authors, uh, Jim Courtney, who's here at Florida State, uh, Rick Stroop, Dwight Lee, and Tawny Ferrerini, all of them have uh, been really
1: good it's a great book and we've had a lot of fun with that over the the previous few weeks or or a couple of months discussing the the economic uh, key elements so today we're going to jump in i believe it's number 11 and we're going to talk about the the invisible hand i know that sounds like a sounds like a horror show that we're going to talk about but it's uh i think it's it's got a neat twist to it and it's got some some historic Relevant, so I'll let you uh, give us a quote on that too. Yeah, well, I will start with uh, telling you where this uh, whole
0: thing came from. It came from uh, the so called father of economics, Adam Smith. He actually wasn't an economist, he was a moral philosopher. And way back when uh, economics first started, it was actually referred to as political economy. And over the years, political science and economics kind of split, Uh, but we have uh, very similar beginnings. So Adam Smith was a Scottish moral philosopher He taught at the University of Glasgow, uh, had a, r- a variety of other jobs along the way. Uh, and in 1776, he published his book called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. That's a long title. That is a long title. So referred to that as The Wealth of Nations. It's a very thick book. Uh, I've read through almost every page. It took me quite a while. It was a real doorstopper. Uh, but it has a lot of stuff that's still very relevant to today. Some of the things are a little outdated and uh, have uh, since been uh, improved. Um, But there's one quote in here that I want to read to you. The interesting thing about the Invisible Hand is perhaps one of the most uh, commonly cited, most famous phrases out of the book, and it only appears once. In this huge book, Adam Smith says invisible hand just one time, and for many people, this is the most famous thing to come out of that entire book. So interesting. <laughs> really short, let me just the famous quote from Adam Smith, 1776. Every individual is continually exerting himself to find out the most advantageous employment for whatever capital he can command. It is his own advantage, indeed, in not Society which he has in view, but the study of his own advantage naturally, or rather necessarily, leads him to prefer that employment which is most advantageous to society. He intends his he is only, his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote a which was not part of his intention. So
1: that's the official quote. So translate that for you. Give us the translation.
0: Interest, they want to get the job that is going to provide them satisfaction and also provide them income. They're actually helping me out, and they kind of look at me and say, like, Well, how is me getting a job in my field going to help you out? And I remind them that I'm only good at doing a very small number of things, so when they go get a job, then it's different than what I can do that provides me an opportunity to train with them. So, as somebody got. I'm not very good at being an accountant, and I need that kind of accounting services. When somebody goes out and they become a mechanic, that's great for me, because I don't know anything about cars other than how to turn it on and drive it around a little bit. When somebody goes out and and figures out uh, how to make a computer, that's great. I know how to use a computer. I don't know how it operates. So when these people go get jobs, they're doing it out of their own self interest just different than being self-interest their own self-interest right. because they're trying to find something that's satisfying that's going to earn them an income,
1: but yet they're going to make the rest of society better off. So they and improve... What I'm trying to get across here is, yes,
0: I'm after my own self-interest, but along the way, I'm going to do great things for my neighbors and great things for society because it allows us to trade, and we've talked about trade in some uh, earlier discussions. So that...
1: Right. So that benefit or that self-profit motivation and profit, not just I'm going to make money, but profit in that I'm going to have a good time doing it. I'm going to be good at it. So that motivation uh, lifts everyone. It makes society better. It makes other businesses better. It makes other people better. It, it allows them to get a better service, a better product, because you're doing the best you can to 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 be efficient and to and to make a profit.
0: Just imagine the last time you went to the grocery store, or to any store, and you had your items, and you went up to the cashier's line, and there's a whole bunch of cashiers to choose from, right? I mean, if you go during regular business hours, you got maybe sometimes 8 or 10 cashiers to choose from. So your self-interest says, I need to get out of the store and gather by life as fast as possible. So what do you do? You try to anticipate what the shortest line is. Exactly. Right? You, game, you, know, you kind of look at everybody and you're like, okay, I think that one's moving the fastest. Well, as I do that, all the other customers are helped out as well. Because if imagine if there were 10 cashiers available and we all lined up at one,
1: right. well, that's in nobody's individual self-interest. It's also nobody's group interest.
0: Well, we'd be better if we spread ourselves out there's two ways of doing that. You just let the individual customer say, you know what, I'm going to decide what I think is going to be the fastest line, or you've some kind of central planner, you've the manager of the store saying, okay, you go to line one, you go to line two. Well, we don't do that, right? So this is a great application of the invisible man. What I'm trying to do to get my self-interest to profit, that is, get out of the store as quickly as possible, is that for me, and it's good for me.
1: That's right. Right. Not only is it better for the. the the Right. Not only is it good for the customers that are there that are in line, but it's also good for the business. So they because they can cycle through more customers as well.
0: Instead of the, the individual customer choosing which line to go in, and we've all done this, right? You think, oh, that's going to be the shortest line, and then there's a price check. Right. Somebody's writing a check, and then, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh great, I picked the wrong line. You kind of look over your shoulder, and and uh, you know, the, the three people behind you are already in their car, out the door. and You're like, oh, I, I, I missed this one. Well what we're seeing is. Instead of lining up in the individual stations, there's just kind of a general queue. Right. And then when the next available uh, texture becomes
1: open, then the person just jumps in the next available one. Right. Right. I don't know if this was uh, Professor Joe's uh, input into this theory or if it was actually from Adam Smith, but when you said that there was, uh, there could be a central planner that said, okay, you go next, you go to this line, that could be interpreted as the federal government imposing some type of, of uh, regulation, or they could be putting the, like we talked about the cash for clunkers, where they're, they're imposing themselves or their will on what happens in a free economy. And the outcome of that may not be good. There may be some unintended consequences of of that interference.
0: Yeah. So that's what was happening in the, Union in the 70s and the 80s. And in just kind of at that thought. Going, I don't want Congress those kinds of things because
1: that would wind up with some really bad outcomes. Plus, slow. The <laughs> right. Hard, right.
0: demand. And now we have an orderly society. We don't really think about economics being uh part of ordering our society, but it really is. When you allow people to decide for themselves, that is a method of organizing people, not just to make economic decisions, but to make all kinds of
1: decisions. Right. What so what is the equilibrium in that whole system or what is the what's the check and balance to make sure that we're not having too much interference, but yet enough interference to kind of keep the guardrails in place so that people don't, don't get out of bounds. We don't have monopolies in place, just as an example. So there, we do need some regulation, some guidelines from the federal government or state government, but too much is can be overbearing and then impede growth and and free economy.
0: not really what it is. So the market can impose its own guardrails and its own culture and its own regulations, Uh, but absolutely there is a role for government here, a very necessary role at both the state level and the federal level to set those boundaries. It's just like if you open up a new game we want to know what the rules are. So the rules are the guard rules. The rules are the regulations that make sure that the game is being played to the best possible way. And same thing with our federal and state regulations. They're studying the guard rules so everybody knows what the rules are. And we operate within those confines. That's absolutely necessary to have an efficient market. Uh, but we don't always have to have government regulation. As I mentioned, markets can come up with their own rules. Uh, and the, the really difficult part, and this is something we struggle with as a country for, uh, for centuries, is what's the balance? Because we all recognize we need some government regulation, we need some government rules, but like anything, too much of a good thing can turn into a bad thing. Right. It's like when you're on a diet, eating too much of one food actually can be uh, very negative towards your body. So you need to find that balance. And, of course, we're going to disagree where that balance is. I'm going to draw the line here. You're going to draw the line just a little bit farther or a little bit shorter than that. And we're we're probably going to have some disagreement about exactly where that boundary should be.
1: But we do understand there needs to be a boundary. right? Uh, And hopefully over the course of time, we can find that sweet spot. You know, we
0: implement a rule. And I think that was a little bit too strict. We need to loosen it up a little bit more. That was too loose. Maybe we need to become a little bit more strict. And this is where citizens need to get involved in the political process, so they can be part of that
1: rulemaking decision. Right. So it's interesting that that we're in the election cycle right now, or the politics is at the forefront of everything we we look at or do, and the politics and people voting is just another another uh, free choice or another choice that people have. Consumers have choices also. They make their election by uh, buying certain products or uh, buying certain services. So they, they tend to favor one company versus another company uh, based on the outcomes that they receive, the cost that, that, are, that they're charged, and how they treat uh, the, how they treat nature or just just their policies in general. So people make choices on their products and services, just like voters make choices on who they vote for at the at the election poll. So uh, this is the time to do that. So the I guess the bottom line in that is exercise your freedom, exercise the uh, the choices that you have, whether it's at the polls, uh, just like you do as a consumer in the choices you make at the products you buy or the services you purchase.
0: And uh, a very dear friend of mine is is very famous for asking people on a regular basis, did you vote today? And most people are like, no, we didn't vote today. It wasn't election day. You know, the election is next month. And he reminds me that that people vote every single day. You vote in the marketplace of ideas. Yes. And you
1: vote in the actual marketplace in terms of the businesses that, that you go to. Just ask yourself, you know, what did you have for lunch today? Well, that was a vote. That's right. You voted for the turkey sandwich as opposed to
0: the sandwich or from the hamburger or whatever your choices were. You passed the vote today in the marketplace. And when you're thinking about the the marketplace of ideas, you you promote certain ideas. You say yes, I'm going to support that one. And you vote for an idea. We vote almost every minute of every day because of the choices that we make. Oh, yeah. Sometimes when we vote with our feet, you know, think about all the businesses that you don't come to. You're sending them a very strong signal, hey, I don't go there because there's a reason. And you do go to those places uh, that you um, buy stuff. Because there's a very good reason there. I mean, you, you don't just jump darts to the wall and say, "Well, I'm not going to have this for lunch today." There's a very specific reason. So we vote every day as consumers. Yeah, that's a good
1: point, and it's also when you said people vote with their with their feet. If you if you've noticed some of the exodus from high tax states, people are leaving those states just because of that. You know, the they they feel like the competition or the tax they pay leaves too much too little in their paycheck after they pay all those taxes or the burdens or the regulations are too high in those states. So they're they've made the choice to to leave those states and go elsewhere where the burdens they think are less. So they, they have made their vote with their feet by leaving. It has to be in our country, I don't have to have from the federal
0: government to to Florida and Georgia. If I think Georgia's going to I just pick up my stuff and I move, and I'm still a citizen of the United States. Right. And I've lived in several states, in and I'm very happy to be a Floridian right now. But if for some reason the Florida start changing laws in a way that wasn't conducive to my beliefs or, or, or the way I like to think or the way I like to live, I can pack up and, and move across the border, and I can go anywhere within the 50 states. And that's
1: a great thing that we Americans have, and we need to remember that, and we need to cherish that. Absolutely, Joe. That's what I like about these these chats that we have together. We we talk about uh, probably some old and historic uh, economic theories, but we always apply it to today's living, today's uh, what we're seeing the in the newspaper today, what we're what we're living on an everyday basis in in our current economy. So it's good to bring that you know right into home. How does it affect us today? What are we seeing in the newspaper? What are we seeing in our streets and our economies today? So. Anything else that we want to touch on, on, on the invisible hand? This is, uh, I know this was created by Adam Smith a long time ago, so what else did we learn from him?
0: On the map, even if you offer them a, a big reward for it. But yet, in, in the little tele that most of the world has never heard of, we have almost the exact number of items on the shelves that consumers want to buy. It's a pretty rare occurrence that you go to any store and you want to buy something and it's not there. That's true. Think back to the last time you went to Publix and you went to buy something and the, and the shelf was empty. That's a pretty unusual circumstance. And how does that happen? That happens because the invisible hand, public, cares about itself, certainly, and by caring about itself, it cares for its customers, and how does it care for its customers? It makes sure that it has the quantities there and about the right amount that people want to buy. So, self interesting. Yes chick cares about me but only to the extent that it can satisfy their self-interest. Does chick really care about my belly and my calorie count? Not really, but in order to care about itself, it has to care about me a little bit. It has to give me a product and an experience that I'm willing to give money for because there's lots of alternatives. And if they're not doing a good job, then I'm going to go with my feet and I'm going to go somewhere else. So. It's the consequence of the invisible hand that I really want people to focus on. We get societal order, we get efficient outcomes, and we get cooperation in ways that we could never get if all of this was centrally planned by
1: a handful of people at the top of our government. Absolutely, and so much of that is is done without implementing regulations. Just leave people to do what they naturally do best.
0: Kind of evolve. Now, they may not all be there at the very beginning, but over the course of that playtime, the rules will evolve. So, if you allow markets and people to make up their own rules, many times they will get the job done. But sometimes they won't. And we recognize that, and that's the role for government, is to come in and maybe push them a little farther than what they want to. But many times, smart people will make up their own rules that will get efficient, good outcomes, not just for them but also for the rest of society and also for the environment. It's not that we were going to make up rules such that we just tear down all the trees and, and pollute the water. And that's it. Nobody's self-interest either. So if we allow markets to expand a lot of the water, kind of create some great good rules on their own.
1: And by their short, in return to the government, make the best of this tomorrow. Absolutely. Joe, this has been another informative show on another important economic theory so thank you again for joining us from Tallahassee Florida out by the pool in the beautiful sunshine in the state of Florida and the capital of Florida Tallahassee absolutely you have seen it here I am your host of answers account Charles Musgrove thank you for joining us for another great show You know where to find us on all the podcast channels, whatever your favorite, check us out there. And we're on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to us and hit the notification button so that you'll be notified when future shows are posted. Thank you for joining us. Again, have a great day. Have a blessed
0: week. Peace. Answers That Count is brought to you by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting needs, visit beanteam.com for more info. You can listen to more episodes of Answers That Count on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Or visit answersthatcount.com.